The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Francis Weller, an MFT. Francis is a psychotherapist, writer, and soul activist. He's a master of synthesizing diverse streams of thought from psychology, anthropology, mythology, alchemy, indigenous cultures, and poetic traditions. Author of The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal, and The Sacred Work of Grief, he's introduced the healing work of ritual to thousands of people. The core of his work is creating pathways to reclaiming our indigenous soul, what psychologist Carl Carl Jung called the unforgotten wisdom that resides in the heart of the psyche. To further this work, he founded and directed, directs still Wisdom Bridge, an organization that offers educational programs that seek to integrate the wisdom from traditional cultures with the insights and knowledge gathered from Western poetic, psychological, and spiritual practices. Francis received a BA from the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, and two master's degrees from John F. Kennedy University clinical psychology, and transpersonal psychology. His writings have appeared in anthologies and journals exploring the confluence between psyche, nature, and culture. His work was featured in The Sun magazine in October, uh, I guess this, this month actually, October 2015. He's a frequent presenter and keynote speaker at conferences bringing insight, poetry, and a breath of humor to his talks. Francis is currently on the staff of Commonweal Cancer Help Program, co-leading their week-long retreats with Michael Lerner. He's taught at Sonoma State University, the Sophia Center in Oakland, and the Minnesota Men's Conference, and he's currently completing his second book, A Trail on the Ground, Tracking the Ways of the Indigenous Soul. Welcome, Francis. So good to be with you, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm very happy to have you. I I want to start just by saying that I really loved reading your book. Um and what I what I experienced reading it is that it was um inspiring in me what you were describing, which is a sense of being uh spending time with my grief with a trusted other. Even wow. though I was alone in a room reading, I felt that sense of community um, in support of just um, grief getting some permission. So I, I really want to thank you for that because I've been, um, my mom died about a year ago and I've had much less time to spend with that than I have, than I did when my wife died. 
uh, because ironically, I'm I'm um, very busy with this show about grief. <laughs> so <laughs> it was it was lovely to spend that time. Thank you so much. You're so welcome, and I'm pleased that the uh, the book was useful for you. We really don't offer ourselves a whole lot of time and space um, to really, in a sense, honor sorrow as if it's a presence that's come to, to visit and to be with us. We uh, oftentimes treat it as something to get through and endure. But what if we acknowledge that there's something that actually is inviting us into a deeper and, in a sense, more intimate conversation with our own soul? Yes, I, I really resonated with this sentence in your, this statement in your book, which connects, I think, to what you're saying. Uh, without some measure of intimacy with grief, our capacity to be with any other emotion or experience in our life is greatly compromised. Uh, that so resonated with me in my own experience that before I said yes to grief, there were a lot of other things I was sort of dodging at the same time. Yeah, I, th- I consider grief a threshold emotion in the sense that when the heart retracts from encountering that type of uh, uh, experience, the rest of the door is all shut behind it. And I can, I, like right now, I think we live in what I call a flatline culture, mm. where that range of emotion that we're allowed to inhabit is very, very narrow. And when we do that, when we compress the emotional range, we begin to live, like I say, in a a sense, in a flatline experience. Very little true joy, very little true depth of experience. So then we rely upon stimulation and stimulants to actually feel like we're alive. And we're addicted to, in a a sense, speed in, in many different ways in our culture, just to feel like we have a pulse. I'm also connecting that with when there's when there's a huge cultural loss. Um, the most recent being um, maybe Oregon, um, the oh. mass shooting in Oregon, or <coughs> any of those mass shootings. Um, there's sort of a the 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 stopper comes out, but then there's no, you know, real container for it. Uh, well, that's that's precisely right. We um, don't have collective rituals that would allow us to really meaningfully address what's there. There was a moment after 9-11 when, it, when somehow instinctively we began to gather together and begin to respond to this enormous cultural loss, mm-hmm. but then that quickly dissipated into war and shopping, you know, distraction <laughs> yes. basically. How do we avoid the uh, the intensity of these experiences and kind of go back into what I consider the two primary sins of our culture, which are amnesia and anesthesia? We yes. forget and we go numb. Absolutely, I do. I do um, look for and find exceptions. For instance, I'm thinking about something that happened in my town uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, a young man, and I'm I'm. Um, my brain is not coming up with his last name, but he his first name was Anthony. He was an artist, and he was painting a mural. And it was a peace-dedicated mural, and he was killed while he was painting it. Mm. Uh, and it was, it was quite profoundly rupturing uh, to me and many people. 
um, because of that because of that intersection. Well, what's happened because I pass that way a lot, uh, and I've actually gotten out. Um, there was a great groundswell of people. There were. Um, you know, seven day candles lined up across the entire street and people mm. came and joined and finished the mural. And, uh, now the, the scaffolding is gone. Uh, the painting is completed and the candles are still there. I'm finding it incredibly beautiful. Um, you know, because of what we're talking about, how, how infrequent that is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and how beautiful when it happens, yeah. Oh, it's, it's like granting us uh, a little room of permission to really acknowledge what's going on around us, you know, most every day. And we we need these little sanctuaries, these little um, moments where we can pause and connect back up to what's actually touching our heart. Otherwise, like we said before, we're just kind of busily moving through our days with barely a touch in to the realities of what really matters to heart and soul. Mm. I, I want to talk a little bit about, um, about the five gateways of grief that you, that you described. Um, I had never heard it expressed quite that way. I've been aware of, uh, you know, I, I'll tell people what I do, that I do this show and they'll, and they'll, think I only talk to people about um, the loss of a loved one. And I'll say, no, I have shows on racism. I have shows on um, collective grief. I have shows on, you know, <laughs> it's right. all grief to me. Right. But that, that's an uncommon, I was, I was very happy that you enumerated those different ways that we grieve, that, that, um, there are political griefs and, you know, um, gr- uh, griefs about the planet and etc. I wondered if you could talk some about those gateways. Absolutely. I think it's, it's very helpful because, as you are saying it, really the only gateway that, uh, the only grief that's really acknowledged culturally is when we lose someone or something that we love. And that, to me, is like that's the first gate of grief, is that we will all lose you know, a, a, a beloved pet or a, a spouse or a child or a friend or ultimately our own lives. And that gate uh, is essential that we have acknowledged, but it really is the only gate. The second gate of grief is the grief that has to do with those parts of us that, were, that have never received love. You know, we're all acculturated in ways uh, by family, by educational systems by religious systems and told that certain parts of us are no longer welcome. You know, the angry part, the sad part, the sensuous part, even the joyous part. Mm-hmm. And so those parts of us get cleaved off in order to present a self that we hopefully will find acceptable to the world. Well, those are losses to our integrity. And, we, you know, simultaneously to losing these parts, we learn that they are somehow less valuable and they're worthless so we begin to judge them and we're living in a chronic state of disconnection to these parts of us which is a state of loss but we cannot grieve for something that we now hold with judgment and this is what i face every day in my practice and i'm sure you do too is that absolutely a huge part of our work is to help redeem these outcast pieces of soul life but that's a huge grief and we actually need to weep for them 
in a sense, almost to bathe them back in that baptismal water of our own tears to let them know that we are wanting them back. Uh, So that's a deep source of grief um, in our work. The third gate is the uh, sorrows of the world. And today on my way in to work, I wept about a third of the way in uh, because of a a beautiful, beautiful buck, a six-point buck was lying on the side of the road after having been struck and killed, and it mm. just pierced me. Mm-hmm. And I just cried, you know, for a good part of my drive-in. And these losses that are going on around the world are touching us all the time, and it takes every bit of our ability to almost keep them out. Um, otherwise, we could drown. Uh, particularly when we're forced to f- face all of that alone, which is most of our predicaments. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a second. I'm sure we will. But this third gate is really uh, precipitous right now with all of the um, news flashes that are coming out about polar ice caps and disappearing glaciers and species depletion. This is an, you know, a, a huge source of sorrow in our hearts and our soul because... Ultimately, what grief tells us is that that's not over there. It's right here. Mm-hmm. I am part of this breathing earth. I am part of all that is dying, and it affects us all the time. And I'm sure you remember when the Gulf oil spill happened. That was a profoundly uh, grief-shaking event for many of us. And yes. I, I wrote in the book that I would often wake up in the middle of the night crying, uh, hearing the sound of the dolphins. And the shorebirds in my ears, even though it's 2,000 miles away, that earth grief was impinging on my psyche because it's not 2,000 miles away. It's right here. Mm. The fourth gate, this one I learned by being in ritual space with many, many people over years. It's what we expected and did not receive. And what I mean by that is that energetically, psychically, Uh, genetically we are wired to expect what our deep time ancestors received which was to be born into a communal setting into a village setting Uh, R.D. Lang the psychiatrist says that we arrive here as stone age children Mm. so in a sense my expectations in my psyche and in my body are to have the same experiences that my ancestors 20-30,000 years ago had which was to wake up in the morning, to be greeted by many pairs of eyes looking back at me, to wonder what I dream, dreamt last night, to gather food in the morning, to build a fire, to do rituals together of, of gratitude and rituals of mourning, uh, to sit under the stars at night, to listen to the stories from the elders, the myths being told. We expected all of this, and almost none of it materialized. And so there's this profound emptiness in us that feels like somehow there's something wrong with me, but that grief is actually a a statement of what did not show up in our experience. Mm. It's not personal. It is actually cultural. And then the last gate is what I call ancestral grief. And this is a complex form of grief that comes from many different ways into us. One of them is simply that our ancestors at some point came from an intact tribal communal culture if we trace our lineage back. And at some point, that lineage was broken. People left for various reasons, some wise, some 
not so wise. <laughs> but uh, they left that, and we left languages, we left traditions, we left a land base that was intimate into our psyches. We left uh, uh, all the different ways in which that culture was embedded in a place and uh, in seasons and so forth. That was one full part of the rupture. But another part of this grief has to do with what happened when our ancestors, particularly for white European ancestors, arrived here. What happened to the indigenous people of this land? What happened when we imported slavery? What happened to the ecosystems? That's a grief that persists in our psyches, and we can still feel it. As you mentioned, Cheryl, you do uh, radio shows on racism. That racism is a lingering piece of that grief that we haven't really addressed communally and, and culturally. And so it, it keeps erupting up and keeps you know, asking us to address this meaningfully. So those yes. are the five gates, and I see them at every, every weekend I do. And there's, and there's, a, we could talk probably for an entire show about each one of those. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm uh, just uh, flooded with so many stories in my in my own life of people trying to address that. For instance, I have a friend who um, did a pilgrimage. They, uh, she, and many other people walked all the way down the East Coast and stopped at every. Um, kind of known plantation mm-hmm. and prayed and then they took a boat all the way across to Africa and prayed where people where many people had um been taken from mm. and um you know that kind of deep yep. ritual I'm involved in a music project right now which is a healing ritual for the um the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki so um, I, I think those—that's where you ended, and that's so powerful, <laughs> you know, just to to have those places that that stand out where we are trying to have that grief together and and make some progress with it. Absolutely. Let's, let's talk more about that when we come back. It's time for our first break, but we'll we'll pick that that up when we when we come back. And listeners, you can. Find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America so you can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, connect on LinkedIn, all of that kind of stuff, and sign up for my email list so you can know who's coming up on Good Grief. And to find Francis Weller, go to FrancisWeller.net. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I am Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Frances Weller, whose book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, eloquently invites us into supporting our grief through ritual. And before the break, Frances, we were talking about these five gates, and um, uh, what I appreciate so much about that is um, when I was training as a therapist, as probably a lot of my listeners know, uh, my wife was um, had cancer. And so the two got really, and she died uh, not long into my work as a therapist. Um, and so there, I've always called myself a grief counselor, no matter what I'm working with, um, <laughs> because there's always so much loss involved in whatever people are coming through my door with. Um, but of course, the doorway for that for me was my experience with her, which is a very, very personal and long experience. And I think we were talking before the break about how that's often true that we become aware of, well, I guess when a loss is so personal, you can't get out of it in some sense. True. It's, it, it impinges on us and, and tries to actually affect us in a deepening way that breaks the heart open. I mean, that's part of the deep value of grief is that it has a way of of kind of ripening us into a deeper intimacy with all of life. You know, it's it's so strange. Our, our primary associations with grief are almost like a state of depression or a state of deadness, but in reality, grief is incredibly alive. And there's a beautiful alchemy between our grief and our sense of intimacy with, with the world. When we really allow it to change us and to work us, which is a fierce process, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it at all. No, me neither. But it breaks us into a, a much more permeable relationship with with life. Because what what we're actually saying, I think, in, in all honesty, is that there's a profound relationship between love and sorrow. The way I've heard that expressed many times is um, loss is the price of deep love. Yes. Uh, that the there, contract. there really is not one without the other. No, no, no. The only way to really mitigate against loss is to minimize our love, or or avoid it. Sometimes yes. I, yes. I think that might have been me when I was young. Mm. <laughs> no, just yeah. stay away from that pain. Um, <laughs> me and a lot of people. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, but boy, it's such a terrible bargain. Well, it is. I mean, that's uh, love is the is the main. 
event in this lifetime, isn't it? And if we uh, sadly choose to not enter, enter some deep you know, conversation with that, it, uh, we leave here pretty bitter. You know, I'm thinking about one of the people you described in the book who'd had a heart attack and was intent on getting back to life as it was before, as if that would have been possible. And you said, uh, which which could have been a chancy thing to say, I'm concerned that you're going to waste a perfectly good heart attack. Right. Um, <laughs> how did How did he take that? Because well, that's it, what we're talking about, you know, whatever doorway comes to you, in his case, it was threat to his own life. Right. Um, he could have just not walked through. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I, I think I, I chose to say that to him in part because he was already trying to put the bravado of, of you know, macho masculinity back on. And that would have, I think, would have doomed him to another heart attack. And so I, I, I took that chance to say that to him as a way of kind of shaking him out of his trance a little bit. Mm. I often say to men in my practice that I've never seen a man walk into my office voluntarily. They all come in because they've been defeated. Something has knocked them off the horse, this heroic horse of I'm in control, whether it's a heart attack or a divorce or an illness or a... An addiction or depression, some or loss of a job, something knocks them off the horse, and that is a moment of grace. If a man can really claim that and be claimed by soul or a deeper calling in their life, and that's what I thought was happening with this man. He was trying to get back up on the horse without ever asking that core question: "Is what is my heart trying to say to me here?" And what might I? How might I be changed by this? Precisely. Uh, my my priorities or my um, my feeling about my life, or um, so he he was. I you know that's interesting because I find I work with cancer um, a lot, <laughs> and um, that is an ongoing, long term relationship to yes. the potential for loss. Um, so, so in a way, I find uh, people can't quite get back on the horse with that. Uh, it, people try, but it doesn't quite work. No. Uh, I, I've had many people come years after treatment because they can't shake this fear of, of recurrence and death. And, you know, um, it keeps being present where it has somehow, it seems to me, with something like heart attack... Uh, people are like, well, I'll run more, and then I, this won't happen. <laughs> yeah. Is that your experience, too? Well, yeah, the, the fiction of it is that you can just, you know, get back to the way things were. But again, that, that's, that's that sense of, of missing the intention. You know, uh, I, when I'm working with cancer patients at the Commonweal Program, I tell them that they are in the midst of what I call a rough initiation. And any true encounter with death, whether it's through heart attack or cancer, it's, it's meant to radically change you. It's not, you're not supposed to come out of this the same as you went in. Otherwise, there would be no initiatory quality to it. So in, in any genuine initiation, there's three things that happen. One of them is that there's a, a severance from the way things were. So when that diagnosis is, is given to somebody over the phone or in person, 
something just rips, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And then the Absolutely. second thing that happens in a genuine initiation is that my sense of identity is radically shifted. I am not who I was. And the third thing is that there's a realization that I can never go back to the way things were. Now, when that's being conducted by elders in a community in the ritual setting of true initiation, that is something that breaks us open to a larger sense of identity. When it happens in our times with cancer or heart disease or whatever, it tends to fracture us down into a very isolated state. And what we need is some way of understanding the, the encounter uh, with death as a, as a request for something larger to emerge out of our own life. We're not meant to come out of these things the same way as we went into them. And that's what I work with a lot of the people down in the Commonweal program is, what is being asked of you here? Mm. You didn't choose this, but here it is. Here it is. It connects with something I, I uh, say all the time in my work, which is uh, things happen and we may as well make something out of them. That's what mm-hmm. redeems the experience in a sense. Right. Uh, right. And, and makes, uh, makes it life-affirming. Because I, I know, I hear a lot from people, I'll never be the same in an extremely negative yes. um, context. Yes. I'll never be the same, and that's a nightmare. Well, that's, you know, that's part of our whole medical model that will get you back to the way things were. And we miss the sacred crisis that's in front of us. This is an invitation for a radically bigger sense of identity to, to take shape. But because of the model, it feels like we've failed, or we're being punished, or we're being, or being, or being defeated. Our way of interpreting these encounters with radical alterations in our terrain are almost always something's wrong, mm-hmm. rather than something new is trying to actually you know, insert itself into my, into my life. We need some new models. We need some new imagination. And I think you know, even the imagery of initiation is a, is a way to begin to see it in a larger context. Well, that's a, that's a very uh, powerful word, initiation, um, in the sense that um, even maybe some things we could call initiation in our culture, uh, I got baptized when I was 12, uh, you know, many of my Jewish friends had bar and bats mitzvahs, etc. There isn't the quality of depth to those events, I find, that mm-hmm. they originally had. Um, yeah. There may be some training, but it's kind of a hoop to jump through. Yes? Right. I think, you know, what we have are ceremonies, which are very important. Ceremonies tend to develop and support the horizontal dimension of our life, the communal dimension of our life. Boy, do we need those. What ritual does is it activates the vertical dimension. It shakes us out of the familiar terrain. In my writings and in the workshops, I talk about how ritual, and that's what initiation would be, would be a profound series of rituals. Rituals are intended to derange us. And it's a scary word, but... It's a necessary word from time to time because the current arrangement isn't working. 
and mm-hmm. we need to be rearranged periodically in ways that are closer approximation to how our soul is trying to express itself in our lifetime. And we can get so caught into how we're supposed to be, how would people like me, and that's not the life we came here to live. We actually came here to live quite wild and uh, expressive lives. And in these initiation times are, are encounters that shake us out of oh conformity or compliance or uh, accommodation, which a lot of us, I know my own life, I was, I was a great accommodator. Mm-hmm. But some crisis came along in my life and just demanded that I live much more authentically, much more in, in accord with what matters to my being than whether or not I'm you know, being acceptable or approvable. What that brought up in my mind, as I mentioned to you on the break, I was deeply involved in a, in a Lakota community for a long time. And um, what I noticed uh, in that commitment was that it was not a linear, that the, that the um, ritual of that um, tradition is nonlinear, and that mm-hmm. my linear brain kept fighting the derangement. Right. And, right. and then as time went on, I learned to appreciate that things weren't going in, in an order I recognized. That, that I was being, I was out of my element, if you will. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know why it was happening that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had to just surrender to the people I trusted. That's it. Uh, and so there's some way that I think we are very um, allergic to that as as kind of at least Western white thinkers. Everything's supposed to line up in a kind of understandable uh, gestalt, yes? Well, we're supposed to always be in control is one of the main teachings in Western cultures. Always be in control of your experience. Don't fall apart don't lose control. So, and built underneath that is a, is a great anxiety, going back to that second gate, that if I don't show you a good face, if I don't show you that I'm in control of myself, there's a good chance I'm going to be sent out of the circle. This anxiety underrides so much of our behavior culturally. Mm. We want to look right, we want to talk right, we want to act right, we want to do everything perfectly. And a lot of psychology unfortunately kind of colludes with that is how do we make people better? Yes. How do we make them, you know, stronger? How do we make them more integrated? You know, part of the fiction around that is that we've got to get our stuff together. Otherwise, we are not going to be welcome inside. And that's a tremendous sorrow that we don't know from birth that we already are in. Well, it's also a deep irony because there isn't any way to feel that you are... are um belonging or or one of or in if you aren't being yourself true if there's fabrication how would you feel that the the you you are is truly uh truly in right i often say i performed francis for 40 years but i wasn't francis you know there was and that's i can feel it even just saying that what a grief that is that i lost four decades Mm. trying to figure out how to get in. 
But even if someone gave me a welcome, I wouldn't trust it because I knew it was all part of an act. So until that cracked, until I hit bottom in that sense and was given a hand by some dear friends and helped through a very intense ritual process, um, that deeper part of me was never given an access to show up. So something came along in your own life that kind of broke you down in some sense. Oh, very deep depression. Very deep depression. Yeah, it was a you know profound time of. I mean, the outside of my life was was wonderful. A, you know, a nice marriage. Uh, my son was you know had just been born, and uh, I had a lovely house up on the hill. I mean, practice was going well. Everything on the outside was fine, but inside I was dying, and partly because. It was not genuinely me showing up for this life. It was really the performer. I was just trying to be someone, a good husband, a good dad. I was just trying to be somebody that I thought people would approve of. But my Mm -hmm. soul refused to go along with that and took me into this very deep place, this very deep depression, until by desperation I asked some people for help. And they put me through an ordeal that... uh, in a sense, began my life. I, I consider my birth date now uh, December 2nd, 1996. Mm. That's when I came to life. It's the first time I really kind of stepped across a threshold and said, I'm in. Without any hesitation, I'm in. This is my life. So, you know, once we make that commitment, and, and after I did that, I, w- I should say that the profound layer of grief that I had to encounter was just stunning. Um, because I, you know, I had to really weep for all of the self-abandonment that I had participated in for decades. Mm. And I had to do that out of great compassion. That's all I knew at that time. No judgment, no blame, just sorrow. It's hard to get to that kind of surrender without really getting knocked down, I find, uh, unfortunately. Um, it seems as if that's a, a very common story. Of re- it's my story for sure. It's most of the people that I have on my show just really getting very much knocked down by by yeah. an experience and having to figure out what to do next. Let's let's come back to that after the second break. Sure, listeners. You can find me at www.weatheringgrief.com or at the Good Grief host page at Voice America. To find Francis Weller, go to franciswelller.net and we'll be back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. 
Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. Frances Weller is my guest today, and we've been talking about the importance of community and ritual for supporting us in grief both for losses and just the, the griefs we have as members of the, the world community. And we were talking right before the break, Francis, about um, the way in which most people who, who uh, end up um, uh, saying yes to their grief sort of at first have no choice. Something so big comes along. I know this is true of me, and you were just talking about the way in which it's true for you, that you just, uh, Stephen Levine used to say, no feeling in grief is new. It's just turned up so high you cannot turn it off, um, which which I find true in some ways. You know, you just, you, ha- you what other choice is there in a way? Right. Um, are there people who participate in your rituals who just are for some reason drawn to it but no way they can identify why or is it mostly people who are having that experience they're they're just kind of desperate for something that will that will help them well I, uh, yes all of the above i think people who show up are there i remember one woman had a recent one says on friday night says i'm terrified i don't know why i'm here but I know that, that the grief I'm carrying is just, is just crushing me. See, part of our predicament, Cheryl, is, and I'm, I know you know this, is that we're forced to carry our grief in private. Mm. And we, we see very few models of grief communally. And yes. so it usually does take something knocking us to the, to the ground before we are forced to begin to address it. Because up until then, we're trying to cope we're trying to deal with it. We're just trying to endure. We have tremendous muscles of endurance, but very few active ways of granting us permission to really bring our grief to a neighbor, to a friend, to our partners. You know? So that's part of our predicament. And what shows up in the grief rituals are all of these people. I mean, it's so strange. I'll often say on Friday night, isn't it weird that we need a weekend ritual uh, workshop on grief. Isn't it strange that we have to travel? Some people came off from, you know, from Massachusetts, from Georgia, from Wisconsin. Mm. They come from all over the country to fly in all the way across country to do a weekend retreat on grief. This should be happening in every community. But we have lost the practices. We have lost some deep understanding of the absolute necessity 
of attending to this in our local communities, except when there is a tragedy. But people are dealing with loss every day. And we rarely have, you know, means by which we can address it. So, yes, people come bewildered by their grief, not knowing what to do with it, uh, overwhelmed by it, terrified of it. But they come, and by Sunday, they have come into a different relationship with it. And it's a communal, it's now what I call a communal relationship with grief. This is our sorrow. Mm. This isn't my grief. I might have a particular piece of it, but collectively, we all know loss, don't we? I mean, no one will ever be spared the experience of loss. But we still privatize everything, and, and, and that's part of the damaging thing that happens to us as people in this culture is that we don't get to feel like this is our shared experience. It becomes way too private. You know that brings up something that I that I uh, that really stood out to me in your book, which is that you talked about ritual in just this way that we've been talking just now. The need for community, the need for witness, the the need for accompanying, and and having a sense of being held in our losses, in our in our mourning, and you also talked about the need for um, quiet aloneness and and. Um, uh, being with ourselves, being being able to be alone with our grief as well. And what I was wondering as I read that, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I know that for me, um, learning to listen to the part of me that knew what I needed at a given moment, uh, was it to be with myself? Was it to be with others? Was it to play a song? Was it to dig in the dirt? You know, what did I need? Boy, that was really not accessible to me at the beginning of uh, my own, you know, kind of descent and 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 um, process through my grief. Can you say anything about how people who have been disconnected from their inner sense can get back to a sense of what it is they need in the moment? That's a great question, and I, and I liked how you just described that process because it is a, a, a matter of deep listening and paying attention. Um, the problem is, is that very few of us have had communal settings in which to take our grief. So we're almost banished to uh, deal with dealing with it alone. But that listening of, of when to go out and when to return, uh, that's a subtlety of there will be times the soul requires absolute witnessing and presence. And there will be times when that kind of witnessing feels intrusive. Uh, sometimes our grief feels shy. And mm-hmm. we need some solitude in order to hold that. The thing I love about solitude and silence, I had in the, in the, it's a new chapter in the book, is that it really affords a profound quality of listening. Listening is a form of uh, devotion. And rather than filling up our solitude with noise or busyness, what would it feel like to just get quiet and really come into a reverential investigation of what the grief might be asking from us in this moment? But it's a skill. I mean, it's it's a real skill to listen, to hear what's being asked of me in this moment and really kind of granting that to ourselves. And it's hard because oftentimes we feel like our grief 
is going to be a burden on somebody else. So we don't want to impose. So again, we're kind of, we're kind of locked back into a solitary confinement with our grief. Mm. But we need to have that sense that my ability to be alone with it is in part dependent upon knowing that I'm also held simultaneously by others who love me. It's this beautiful movement back and forth, like inhalation and exhalation. We need them both. We just need to have opportunities and permission. And I often encourage people to just begin to break the taboo and talk to a neighbor, talk to a friend, you know, invite them over and say, you know, I, I would like us to just have a conversation about, about grief, about loss, and just begin to have that conversation. And, you, you know, there's people needing, needing permission to really go into that place because we all have it. I'm thinking of a few things that have happened for me lately. One is um, I'm with some other people in the Bay Area doing Death Salon four times a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, a deeper conversation about death through the arts. So there's, there's you know, theater, poetry, music as an invitation to make community in, in facing death. And I'm also thinking of a of a um, group that invited me to come speak to them recently, where just a bunch of people who knew each other decided to have lunch once once a month and talk. <laughs> you know, just talk about what they were experiencing in aging and death and losses. Um, that's so precious when people create the ways to feel held, because I I. The way I hear what you're saying is, if we know we have community, it's safer to be alone. Precisely. You heard that exactly right. It's as if the tethers are there around our, our, our bodies, so we can go into those descending places below the ground and walk in that place of silence without going in there with so much trepidation or terror. So those things really enhance each other. And what I find in the silence, in the solitude, is something that I can bring back to my village, to my people, and say, this is what I've learned. So I, I have this profound feeling that the work we do in grief is ultimately not meant for us alone. I mean, why are you doing this show? You know, in some ways, what we find in that process of being undone and remade is meant for us to come back with the gravitas, with the weight, with the substance in our hearts and in our bodies and in our souls that becomes medicine for the community. That's what grief can do to us, for us, through us, if we can really, you know, be willing to to deal with the hard work of being undone and remade. And and that changes, you know, I've had guests who are doing basically this, uh, lots of guests who are doing something very different than they were before they touched grief deeply. But men, But quite a few who are doing the exact same work they were doing before, but from such a different place, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. from such a generous outpouring place, as opposed to am I doing it right? Am I, you know, am I being a server right? <laughs> that, that, you know, am I, am I offering my gifts properly and, you know, a kind of mental idea about it and then 
coming into a sense of heart outpouring. I must do this for people. Who cares right. if they think I'm right or not? I right. just have to do it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I think that connects with what you're talking about, that mm-hmm. uh, really when you've been deeply touched, there's a natural generosity. One of my other guests, I think you know, I think you were on her show, Mar- Mariana Cacciatore, oh, yeah. is, is writing a book of that uh, about yeah. that. Uh, yeah. lo- grief, love, and generosity, I believe, is what, she's calling it mm-hmm. um so that's that's so deep in what we're saying isn't it precisely i mean when the heart is broken open the natural impetus the natural rhythm is one of extension to reach out to touch to to offer what it is that we have felt what it is we've discovered yeah absolutely you know, in these, we have just a, a few minutes left, and I'd like to just uh, give you a chance to say what you have upcoming that people might be able to participate in and, and uh, know you. <laughs> you know, um, are there events that you have that uh, people might be able to participate in? Well, there are some uh, book readings, and I'll be in conversation with Michael Lerner on, uh, at the New School at Commonweal. In uh, I think it's the number November thirteenth, um, but book readings locally, and uh, are we also doing a talk on love, loss, and sorrow at uh, mm. the Numinous Center in Santa Rosa? Uh, people are local. Uh, the nu- the Numinous Center. Numina Center for Numina. the Arts. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, wonderful organization. So I'll be doing a talk followed by uh, some people leading a labyrinth walk after. My, my talk. Mm. Yeah, but rituals, uh, grief rituals, are done for the year until March. Actually, I'll be doing one in, in Point Reyes for the Point Reyes bookstore on February sixth, I think it is. And then we do our three local retreats: one in um, March here in Sonoma County, in in April at the Mercy Center in Burlingame, and then uh, in August we do our annual retreat at Commonweal Grief Ritual Retreat. And those will be, uh, I don't think the grief rituals are yet on your calendar if I, if I looked at it properly, but they will be closer to those times so people yes, can, people can, can also find check you. A, check my other website, wisdombridge.net. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. Wisdombridge.net. Yes. Um, I, I wanted to um, end with what, seem to me to almost encapsulate what you were talking about from many different, many stories, many, um, you know, inspirations, etc. But this capped it for me. Grief is a powerful solvent capable of softening the hardest places in our hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you very much for that, uh, for that way of talking about it, um, because, of course, it so connects with my own um, my own work in the world. This this show and other places. It's that's at the heart of it, isn't it? Absolutely. Again, you know, to refuse grief's entry is the only option we have is to become hardened. And you know, when we really accept the rights of grief, we are softened. We are opened. We are ripened in its fullest way, and we become yes. 
so much more human in the embrace of our sorrows and our thanks, capacities thanks, for love. Thanks for being here, Francis. I really appreciated it. Oh. Next week, I welcome Barry and Maya Spector, who've each written books, Maya Poetry and Barry Prose, about the impact of disconnection from indigenous and mythological understandings. And it will be a continuation in, in some ways of what we've been talking about today. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.